Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Bill Hartgrave, President of the University of Memphis, as our guest. Let's go ahead and start, you know, with your journey, you know, and let's start with who are the mentors that that shaped your path, which has led you to the presidency at University of Memphis. You, you know, um, I've, I've had the, the fortune, um, the good fortune of being exposed to a lot of great people and a, gr- a lot of great leaders, some of which I looked up to. I'm not sure that you'd call them formal mentors, but um, you know, what uh, I, I really was fortunate uh, many, many years ago to get to uh, know Sam Walton and be around Sam Walton as he was growing Walmart. And uh, just what a great story and inspiration. And just to kind of see how he operated, uh, you know, from a really being an incredibly humble person, you know, not taking anything for granted. He did everything he could to learn from others. And I learned a lot just by by observing and watching him as he grew Walmart. Um, I, my first academic dean, a guy by the name of Doyle Williams, uh, he was probably my my first formal mentor, and I didn't even know it. He it was he kind of took me under his wing. I was a brand new assistant professor, and he exposed me to a lot of things that I didn't even really understand why he was doing that at the time of. You know, he would take me out when he would meet with donors. He would he would give me all these responsibilities as a as a young faculty member, and um, you know that was what he was doing. Is he saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself at that time, but really set me up up very well. And of course, just just being around lots of you know, I've got lots of great friends and colleagues that are so successful. I try to learn from them. But Brad, one of the things that that um, you know, I, I've actually learned a lot from those who are not so good. Uh, I mean, I do, you really kind of learn what not to do. And I know that sounds counterintuitive when I talk to students. I, you know, I encourage them to learn from, from all those around them and, and to take note of those that, that do things that, you know, you look and you say, you know, I, that's, that's not the right thing to do. And you can, you can learn. It's almost like learning from your failures, but you're learning from what others are doing that you say, you know what, if I were ever a leader, if I were ever a boss, if I were in this position, I wouldn't do that. And, uh, and I've tried to take away from every, every step in my career of those, you know, deans and others that I've been around and say, you know, if, if I'm ever a dean, I, w- I wouldn't do that. Uh, and so I know that sounds counterintuitive from a mentor perspective, but, but we learn from, from all those around us, I believe. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And when we look at your background, I do have to bring up the fact that you're a thought leader in the field of RFID, radio frequency identification, specifically as it relates to global supply chains. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how did you get into that? Let's start there. Yeah. Well, so so my my background before I went into higher education was technology. I did a couple of software startups back way back in the day. And and so, you know, computer science undergraduate and, you know, master's in PhD in information systems. And, and I was fortunate enough when I was at the University of Arkansas as a professor, uh, Walmart headquarters was not too far away. I was doing a lot of work with Walmart. And, you know, that's where I got to experience and, and, and be around Sam Walton. Uh, but I was doing a lot of work with Walmart. In fact, I, I was badged. I, I, although I was a faculty member at the University of Arkansas, I was badged at Walmart headquarters and I was up there all the time. And, and early in the 2000s, 2003, uh, Walmart had decided to start looking at this new technology. It, knew it, it seemed to be new at the time, RFID. And literally, one of the, I was up there one day, and one of the VPs, I was walking by his office and working on, on this other project, and he, he called me and said, hey, Bill, uh, what do you know about RFID? And I said, well, you know, I know a little bit about it. And he said, great. You, you, if you can spell it, you know enough. Um, let, let's, uh, we're going to start this project. And I really want somebody who knows Walmart, but it's outside of Walmart to serve on this team to, to, to work with us. And he said, I want you to serve on this team. You know, he said, I don't think it'd take much time. Well, uh, that was 2003 when Walmart announced that they wanted their top 100 suppliers to start tagging using RFID products flowing through Walmart by 2005. So I started on that team, and then within a few months, I, my full attention was on that. We went on, we went on uh, then with Walmart's backing to, to launch one of the first RFID 
labs in the country at the, at the time of the University of Arkansas. Uh, and, and we focused on that business value. And it just kind of grew from there. Uh, and and the lab's still in existence. It moved, uh, followed me to Auburn when I went to Auburn. And in fact, the, the, the first two, first couple of guys that I ever hired as graduate students still work for and run the lab, uh, you know, um, uh, 17 years later. It's, it's quite awesome. That's great. So now through your journey, did you plan to be a president? <laughs> no. Um, you know, Brad, it's interesting. I, so I grew up in a really small town in um, Arkansas. Um, I was a first generation high school graduate. Oh, wow. And so, um, and that's, so mother and father, nobody on either side of the family, uh, older sisters, older brother, uh, nobody graduated high school. I was, I, and so we didn't talk, we didn't sit around the table talking about uh, presidents and provosts and deans and higher education. That, that just was not something that, that we knew anything about. Um, and, and I, you know, I certainly didn't know what a college president was if you had asked me at the time, you know, so, you know, we talk about setting these career aspirations, you know, <laughs> you know, if you look at, at, at the, at the time that I was probably most impressionable about, about universities, uh, it was probably animal house was my best example of what college was like. Right. And, and, and you know, and if you'd asked me back then who runs the university, it would have been Dean Warmer, right. You know, from, from animal house. And so it, it, it's, it's actually absolutely, um, uh, statistically, I should not be a college president uh, for sure uh, because uh, because of where I started. But again, uh, you know, just the right people were putting my path along the way and saw something in me probably I didn't see in myself, and and, and here I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's been what's been your biggest surprise stepping into office? You know, uh, you know, from from for being a president, um, you know, uh, I. I, I can't say that it's really been, uh, I've had some surprises, uh, you know, um, there will be, but, you know, I, th- I think, I think my time as a, you know, I spent 17 years as a faculty member before I really started down administration, um, which is kind of odd because, you know, I, I was a faculty member and then kind of jumped from that and running a research center to being a dean and then from dean to being a provost and then provost here. And I, and I think being a dean and certainly being a provost for four years, and especially the time when I was provost through the you know the heart of the the pandemic, and, and really just prepared me uh, to take a holistic view at the university to understand how universities run. So you know, so far, I, you know, no no major surprises. I, I've I've been pleasantly surprised with uh, where think where we where we are and the the team that we have and and our great great upside and potential here. That's great. And, and I'd imagine, you know, with your experience, you know, working with with Walmart and, and your previous experiences, can you talk about how important is community and local business relationships and, and how have you fostered those um, during your time? You know, so so one of the things I've been so um, um, I've been so lucky throughout my career uh, because of the field that I was in, because the universities really supported the work I was doing, I've always been close to industry, right? So, I, so I mean, through I mean, I worked with Walmart, Tyson, J.B. Hunt, Dillard's, Amazon, you know, Intel, Microsoft. I mean, just I've just been so blessed to work with these great companies, and and in doing so, really was able to draw them in close, get our faculty out working for them, get our students right on the bleeding edge where those students were going out. Uh, getting great jobs. And, and so I, I think if, you know, throughout that time, it really demonstrates that value of educational institutions at a time when, you know, the value of higher education is being questioned, uh, sadly enough. When we interface with, with the business community, when we're really in touch with that business community, uh, it, it, it heightens our value. It heightens our value because they see us as valuable, but it also makes our students more valuable to those companies as they graduate. And look, students are choosing universities now. One of the main factors is is the outcomes, right? What happens when I make this investment in this four-year degree? What happens? What kind of job am I getting? What type of graduate school am I going to? So when when we are close to industry and we know what industry is wanting and we prepare these to really be workforce ready, 
that that is is certainly uh, a value add. And you know the way that we get close to the community is uh, is to make sure that we we are out in the business community that we have those those uh, those businesses serving on advisory boards that we listen to them. Uh, you know, uh, tomorrow uh, we're we're hosting a roundtable. We'll do uh, a series of these around uh, healthcare. I don't really think personally about healthcare. You know, from a from a, a death perspective perspective, but we're going to get industry people around the table, and I'm going to listen. Right? What are they facing? What are they seeing? Where is it going? Where, where are you seeing that the, the, that the people you're hiring are not where they need to be? And we'll be listening. I'll have my deans in there and my, my provost, and we're going to be listening for what do we need to be doing to be good partners. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you something I, I've, I've learned here at the University of Memphis. Um, and you did ask me earlier, you know, what some of the surprises. And I, this is not a surprise about running the university, but a surprise about what I have found since I've been here. This university is loved and embraced by this community. And, and, and that's rare for an urban campus uh, in, a, in a city of this size for the university to be that important. But I've, but I've, heard, uh, I've heard our mayor and I've heard others say, you know, that, that this, this city is defined by three entities, FedEx, St. Jude's, and the University of Memphis. And, and, and certainly that's some great company for us to be in when we talk about what our role is in this community, and we take it very seriously. I mean, it's 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 a weight, of course, that we that we readily take on. But it does mean that that we owe it to the community to make sure that we understand the community, we understand the business community, and that we're great partners with that business community. So, when you look at at student success, how, how do you how do you define student success? Well, you know, ultimately. Um, I was I was I hosted a lunch for all of our our business or our student leaders yesterday from all of our student organizations, 200 plus students. Um, and, and, and I actually talked about this. And and, um, you know, if you step back from a very high level, the purpose of a university is to help people achieve their hopes and dreams. And I know many of our students don't come in saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to the University of Memphis because I want to achieve my hopes and dreams. They come in, you know, many of our students are, are first generation, you know, and they're choosing majors and, and choosing careers because or choosing uh, the, the career path because they want to succeed. And so when when we define success, we look at is, are we helping our are we helping our students achieve their hopes and dreams? And that's often measured by what happens when they come in and they finish that program that they started, what kind of job did they get? What kind of graduate school did they go to? And we want every student to have a successful outcome. And we, in our, in our field, we call it the first destination, right? And we call it first destination because your first destination uh, is not your last, right? It's, it's, we help you get that first one. And hopefully we have prepared our students to be successful there, but to be uh, knowledgeable and to be thinkers so that they can be successful and adapt all along the way. But but to get to that, so that outcome, you asked what that success was, it's that positive outcome. There's, there's two steps though that lead to that that we have to keep focused on. One is we have to make sure that we are accessible. Can students really get to us can we bring them in? Can, is it affordable? Can, can we get these kids in? We have, to have the, we have to give them the opportunity to be successful once they get here. We've got to have the right support system. We have to have the right programs. Without those two things, you don't get to the, to the, to the great outcomes, right, those positive outcomes. So, so we, we talk all the time, I remind my team, access, opportunities, and then outcomes. Mm-hmm. And how do you make sure, uh, well, I guess I should ask the question, as far as culture, how important is culture and how do you make sure that you have the right culture for the institution? And so that could be with students that they feel like they belong. It could also be as far as employees. How do you make sure that that, that culture is is the right culture? Yeah, well, you know, and, and so let's talk about that from a couple of different perspectives, because I, uh, one of the things that, that drew me to this university and I, and I really just just 
loved every minute of it is we have an incredibly diverse student body here. One of the most diverse student bodies that I've seen of any university of this size and, 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 and reputation. It is absolutely incredible. And, and that is a culture here where a lot of universities today are struggling with, with trying to develop a diverse and inclusive environment. This university has had that for some time in a city that is very diverse. And so we actually, what, what, what I've been challenging our folks to do since I've been here is I, I don't think they realize how special that is. And we need to come and use that from a position of strength that other universities would love to have the diversity that we have. And so they have that culture. And Brad, that's something where I see, uh, you know, other universities, I've seen it firsthand of universities who are not diverse, who really struggle to develop a diverse environment that is inclusive, right? And, and we have to use those things today. It's, the, it's diversity and inclusion. One without, I mean, you, you really can't have a diverse, sustainable environment if it's not an inclusive environment. And boy, we are so blessed to have that here. And then just from, a, from an overall cultural side, from, from the faculty and staff and everybody involved, one of the things that that um, I, I will I'll, I'll continue to, to say, and I, and I said this when I was talking to the students yesterday, we are here for and because of the students. Dead stop. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. And we all, every day, have to remember that we are here because and for the students. And, 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 we, and when we do that, when we, rem we remind ourselves when we get up every day and that's the first thought we have, then we build that culture that leads to those great outcomes that we talked about because everybody's then on the same page about why we're here and everything that we do should be toward this idea of how does that, how is this for the student? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, if we have that culture, we will produce phenomenal students, which, which, other universities want in their graduate programs, which the, the, the industry wants to hire. And again, that, that then attracts more and better students. So it's a, it's a, a great virtuous cycle that you get in. Yeah. And, and you know, um, how do you make sure that you are impressing upon students and alums about the opportunities that they're afforded at an institution? You know, so whether it's four years, whether it's longer, whatever the case may be, to take advantage of what you have at the institution. How do you make sure that, that students understand that and that students are involved and they get the most out of their education, if that makes sense? Yeah, uh, you know, um, it, you know it, it is interesting. You know, go back to something we talked about earlier about, you know, the, the purpose of university is to help people achieve their hopes and dreams. Sometimes they don't know what those hopes and dreams are. And, you know, we can't just sit back passively and wait for somebody to ask for help or to ask us to, you know, move them along this path. Um, we, we are just starting the semester. Yesterday was the first day of the semester. And so um, it's wonderful. Again, part of this culture, we have, we have people that work here at the university that are from the IT department, that are administrative assistants in department. They're out there on, on the concourse and, and various places, and they've got these buttons on them that says, ask me. And, and they're out there really to help the students find where they're going or if they have any questions, right? You know, if you guys remember the first few days of the semester, especially if you're a freshman or, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is it's crazy. You know, how, how do I find anything? But they're out there to help people. And one of the things that, that I, I've learned in, in doing that myself is that if you just stand there very passively, even if you have a button that says, ask me, and you're clearly holding them out, if you stand there passively, very rarely will a student stop to ask you for help. You know, I, there's something about our, the, uh, our culture, uh, and especially, you know, student age culture, uh, it's almost they don't want to ask for help. They almost see it as a sign of weakness. And I and I and I've tried to convince our our students and, and my children about that age of look, 
it's a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. It's actually a sign of weakness if you if you can get help and you don't ask for it. Mm-hmm. And so so what 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 we see is if you stand back passively and do nothing and and don't you know they won't ask you for help. But but when you see somebody walking by, if you say, hey, can I help you find where you're going? It's it's rare that somebody doesn't say, oh, you know what, you could. I, you know, I was kind of looking for this one. Sure. So so I, I, I tell you that story to get to the point that we can't just sit back passively and help people achieve their hopes and dreams. We have to actively pursue how do we help these students and going out and meeting them where they are. And being very purposeful about getting them involved, right? We 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 know that um, a key to success is for a student to feel that they belong, right? And that that we have a culture that's going to help them. And you know, there, there's there's three things that um, that we know from from research suggest how to create that belonging especially for those who are just getting started, right? Because those are the most vulnerable, right? By, by your sophomore, junior year, you've developed that. But, but if we can get a student to live on or near campus so that they feel like they're part of that campus community, if we can get a student to make six or eight new friends hmm. in an area that where they share a common interest, and if we can, sh- and if, if we can show a student that an adult cares about them, so we get, we get them on campus or living, they feel like part of the community, if they can make some new friends in the area, and if they know that an adult cares about them, those three things will, will help create in students a sense of belonging, and that'll go a long way to, to their success. Absolutely, absolutely. So where do you see University of Memphis in five years, 10 years? Yeah, you know, we're, we're actually starting that that process now, Brad, of, of writing a new strategic plan for the university. Um, the, the, the plan we're operating in now was written in, in uh, 2017. Yeah. And I know that doesn't seem like that long ago, but look how much the world has changed since 2017. Look how much higher education, and, and those outside of higher education may not see this, but higher education has changed significantly in those five years. The world certainly has changed. So, so we are working. We are working on a, a new plan now. We, we should have that plan done by by uh, early spring. But we're going to focus on those things that that we talked about those those student outcomes and making sure that we are laser focused on the students. Enrollment is going to be uh, you know a key issue that we're going to have to to uh, make sure that we have a solid enrollment plan. Right. For, for many years, university and higher education has been a, a, li- a little bit spoiled because we just had growth after growth after growth, right, of people going to universities. And it was almost like, well, we could sit back and we had as many students as we wanted. Those days are over. Those days are absolutely over. And so we have to be very thoughtful and strategic about what our student body looks like, where they're coming from, and, 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 and how we have a sustainable student body that 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 really meets our needs as a university and where we can meet their needs. Um, you know, we we have we're very fortunate that we obtained Carnegie R1 status as a top research institution this past December. And uh, we're, while we're grateful to be there, we can't rest on that. We really have to build um, a research enterprise that can sustain that over time. So that's. In the next five years, you'll see things around enrollment. You'll see things around research. And then, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about what a crazy world college athletics is right now. Uh, yeah. It is absolutely turned upside down. And, um, you know, we, we have to, you know, we have to be positioned uh, to be the very best uh, that we can be and to do the things that, that we should, you know, to continue to grow and improve and to be ready on whatever shakes out in athletics, but that's, that's certainly a crazy part of the job right now. Oh boy. You just, <laughs> just went to my favorite subject, but uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so, you know, I, I did read the book by Sam Walton. I was enthralled by it. I'm, I'm assuming you don't have s- Saturday all hands on meeting every, every, every Saturday. Do you? Yes. Yes. You do? Uh, 
I, I went to I went to many of those. They were they were amazing. Wow, and 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 what did people say? Was there Saturday? They they had to show up. I mean, just from a work ethic and culture, trying to get people to come in every Saturday for three decades. And you you know what I I and maybe I didn't see it, but I never saw people like oh got to go into work on Saturday. This was something that was special. It was such a great part of the culture. They looked forward to go into that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. And, and, you know, I think you're the first president. We've, we've spoken to over 70 presidents in the past year, year and a half, that actually started with a computer science degree. You know? <laughs> I mean, actually, yes, I think a couple of days ago, we talked to a president who was a pharmacist. That, that also surprised us. But you started from computer science. Yeah. And you keep going deeper and deeper in technology. You're working at Walmart and and and, and University of Arkansas. Um, what a crazy ride! I mean, just just this whole pinball machine. I mean, at one point, did it trigger with you that this is academia is what I want to be? Because I'm sure you're going between, you know, industry and academia all the time. Yeah. Well, I'm still not sure. <laughs> You know, if you have been, I've just been so lucky that I've been able to kind of keep a foot in both of those. And, um, you know, and, and being an academic yet work with industry, I tell you, I just, you know, sometimes I, I, I think, I, you know, I'm going to wake up from this dream and, you know, this, this wonderful opportunity to, to kind of, de- you know, be in both worlds uh, is going to disappear. But I, I, I have it. And, you know, and it's been one of those things throughout my career. It's like, well, do I go back into industry? Do I stay with, with the academy? And, mm-hmm. you know, I've just been, you know, um, put in a position where uh, I, I've been able, I think, to, to uh, make a difference. And uh, if, you, if, you'll, if you'll bear with me for one more story, um, you know, I'll, I'll share with you something. Because I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know, um, you know, as we talked about, I didn't know anything about higher education. And, and I, I actually kind of backed into it. Um, there was an article that a newspaper wrote uh, several years ago and it called me the accidental professor because I kind of was right. Cause I, I, I didn't know, you know, I, I went, I went to college really just, and that's a whole other story by itself on how I got to college and, um, and what took me to college. But, you know, I came out and did a couple of software startups and, and on the, on the second one I was working on, um, I had an opportunity to, um, um, Really, that by the way, I was doing startups when there wasn't uh, it wasn't real sexy to do startups startups, and there wasn't a lot much money there. My 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 children now say, "Oh, Dad, you were in software startups. What? Why don't we have a bazillion dollars?" Like, well, they you know it was it was a struggle back then when you were in, in startup world. But had an opportunity to go for to go to work for larger companies, you know, and they said, "Hey, get a master's," and so oh, okay, sure, I'll get a master's and. Went to get a master's and they, they actually had me teach a class while I was there on, on assistantship. And they said, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this. You ought to get a Ph.D. So I said, OK, great. I'll go get a Ph.D. Really, honestly, without knowing what all that meant and, and really wasn't sure why I was going down that path. Got my, uh, and in the first week, um, the, the, the new dean that was there who hired me, Dole Williams, who I mentioned earlier, is my, is, is really became my, my mentor. He was having a, um, a town hall meeting, and uh, at uh, and we just here he just entertained questions. At the end of the town hall, I said, "I got time for one more question." And this young lady raised her hand, and I, I think she was trying to, you know, trying to trip him up a bit. But she said, "Dean Williams, what's the meaning of life?" Mm-hmm. And you know, and without hesitation, he said, "To make a difference." Mm-hmm. And and it was that was kind of one of those. Ah, you know, as a professor, brand new professor, I have an opportunity here to actually make a difference, you know, student by student. And as a faculty who was in the classroom who were teaching these students, I had an opportunity. And and that's, JP, that's really what's driven me throughout my chair career, because as a professor, I, I had, you know, my sphere of difference making was here. As a dean, it was here. As provost, it was here. And as president, it's here that I have a chance to make a difference each and every day. And, and that, 
that really has, has driven me for a very long time. So things keeps getting more complex and I think it's getting easier, right? As, yeah. as responsibility and the world is getting more complex. And recently we had a presidential forum. We invited the CTO of Texas Instruments to talk about artificial intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to hear from someone who touches this every single day and bring academic and industry because in some ways it's going to affect how universities are managed but more importantly, how jobs are going to be impacted. Yeah. Um, and this is a little different than automation. We're, we, we don't know it, it is going to be enable, enabling technology, replacing technology. Right. So as you look at as, as, a, as, as a tier one institution, as, as you look at the future, how do you look at all these complexities in the next two, three decades? Yeah. So, you know, one what, what of the things that, we have to make sure that we do is, you know, when you, when you look at a, a university and I'm, a, I'm talking primarily about undergraduate education here, mm-hmm. universities um, and their, and their academic programs and, and the size of those programs are always a five-year lagging indicator. Mm-hmm. And you think about it because it takes, you know, on average, most people five years to graduate now. Right. And so what will happen is if a field's getting hot, it really takes five years before you see that first big wave, right, of graduates who are going, oh, computer science is hot. Let me major in that. Well, it's five years before you really see that wave. Well, on the other hand, when a field starts declining, it takes five years from the academic side for it to go down. And I know that sounds crazy to most business people when I talk about it's a five-year lag indicator, right? Because like, wow, that's as quick as you can move. Well, it is because that's how long it takes to get people through there. And because we know it's a five-year lag indicator, it really puts the pressure on us to look beyond five years. And that's really hard, especially as quickly as things are changing now. But, but that's the value of, ha- of being a leading research institution is that we should be out on the bleeding edge. We mm-hmm. should be out there seeing what's going to happen 10 years from now or having some sense of where this field is going so that we can start turning now so that we are, we are not so much of a five-year lag indicator, but maybe if, maybe we, we time it a little bit better. Maybe, maybe you know, time it perfectly or, or maybe a one or two year lag indicator at, at best, but it really, it puts the burden on us to see out there uh, well beyond the horizon that's in front of us. And, and when we look at things like AI and some automation in some areas and, you know, on the technology side in particular, but just, just new industries that are, that are growing and declining, we have to look out there and say, what's happening? Mm-hmm. I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. Um, my prior institution, this would have been back in um, gosh, 2010. And I was convinced at the time that 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 analytics and business analytics and data analytics and data science, we needed we needed to grow programs. And, and, and I know, you know, 2010 is not that long ago. And it seems like data science and analytics is something we think about all the time. But if you go back to 2010, there were no undergraduate programs in analytics in this country. Hmm. And, and so I convinced our folks there that we ought to have an undergraduate analytics program. And, and I had numerous people. I talked to other deans that were like, nah, it's not going to happen. It's, it's a fad. It'll, 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 this will go by quickly. And so we started one of the we started the first undergraduate academic uh, analytics program, which is now I mean it has it has hundreds of students in that program at a time where we weren't sure that was going to happen. Now that was a gamble, right? Because it could have easily been oh that's something that that faded away, but we we had enough people with enough foresight to say you know what data is going to impact everything, and if you don't. If you, you know, those who come out and know how to utilize data are going to be ahead. And so, so I just use that as an example of if we can look far enough ahead and we can take some gambles. By the way, we're not known in higher education for taking gambles, right? We're, we're a very risk averse environment for the most part 
we have we have to be um, more of a risk taker in trying to do some of these things. Now, with that said, it has to be reasonable, right? It, it would be calculated risk because we don't want to take a risk, um, you know, put and, and, and prepare students for something that doesn't exist out there. But we can be more calculated risk takers than we've been in the past. Certainly. I mean, it, it's still at its infancy. I mean, even though really AI is, you know, they were talking about consciousness, the British, especially AI uh, researchers since the 1950s. So it's not a new subject, but it's definitely starting to pick up. And um, I, I, it's, we're still at this infancy because a lot of machine learning still, it hasn't received the AI status, uh, except in rare cases. So, but Times are changing. So we go back 150 years, the classroom, the K-12 instruction hasn't really changed, you know, up to elementary, middle school, high school. I mean, I've had my kids only take two years of high school now, frankly. You know, I go just go to community college or whatever. You don't, you don't need to go to four years of high school. But the question becomes, there's there are forces that are impacting people going to college. There's vocational jobs. Um, that, that pay even more. There is a negative perception of universities. At the same time, all the data shows that when you look at the long tail of higher education, it pays off. It pays yeah. off to have that deeper complexity. So it, this is a quadruple barrel question, but how do we go from this old archaic structure of education and adapt to this changing world in your view? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about, you know, in, in the last five years, how the world has changed and, and certainly in higher education. Um, what, one of the things in, in my non-academic mm-hmm. world of, of RFID and supply chain and retail that we've been working on for, for several years now is something that's called omni-channel retail. Mm-hmm. And you may have heard that term. It, it essentially means that, you know, we can no longer look at retail as being a, a store, you know, the physical place and then online retail and then, you know, whatever the form. We need to view it as really one channel, one seamless experience for the consumer, right? And the consumer demands that. Well, I took that concept that I've been working on in retail and, and working with some of the world's largest retailers on helping them get omnichannel ready. And thought, well, you know, why, why are we not doing this in education? Because if you think about education, we were doing the same thing that retail was, right? We said, well, here's your traditional education, right? You come to campus and you come into the classroom and we, we teach at you. And then, you know, several years ago, a couple of decades ago, we started these online programs, right? And there were lots of online programs that grew, but they were really separate. You think about this, right? In fact, online programs almost were viewed as kind of a, second tier, you know, and, and, you know, people would I look down on them, right? They'd go, oh, you've got an online degree. Uh, yeah, sorry. You know, and, and, but we did that, we, we did that to ourselves, but we created these silos, these channels of education. So actually I wrote a thought piece. Oh gosh, it was six or seven years ago now that I called um, Omni Education. The idea of making it, you know, stop talking about online, stop talking about how we deliver it as far as traditional and online, but think about delivering the education when, how, and where the consumer, the student, wants that education. Mm-hmm. And honestly, people were like, oh, now it, it never work. You can never get these, these schools, you know, to, to deliver education differently what you what you're doing. And, and I even had that in my own institution. But look what happened in 2020 when the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Universities could pivot. Universities could find ways to deliver education different than what they had for centuries. And so now this idea of omni education actually is has it, it, got a little, caught a little traction. And, and so what I think needs to happen and what we are going to, to do here is we are going to be an omni-educational delivery institution. 
we are going to have, uh, we're going to meet the student where they are. If, if, if they learn better face-to-face, then come to class. If you learn better remote, then we're going to have that option. And if, it, and if your lifestyle demands a hybrid approach, we're going to have that. So that, so that we truly are student-focused and meet them where they are. And there's no distinction between online and face and, and, and that means an education for the 18 to 22 year old or that 35 year old who's who stopped out, who are never started, but wants now to, to better themselves. You know, we make it so hard right now, JP, as a higher education for somebody to come back. And we need to change that. We need to meet them where they are. We, we as an industry should be omni-educational. I'm not so naive as to believe that we will change as an industry, but I believe we can change as this institution that I'm, that I'm privileged to serve as a president of right now. So you're essentially saying that with meeting students where they are, and I'm also hearing lifelong learning, right? Yes. Um, you know, we can't sit on our lures anymore. It's not set and forget it. In fact, uh, you know, last week I, I had a long discussion with some of the, you know, thinkers at Google who, who work on the self-driving car and we're discussing this AI topic. I just wanted to kind of pick their brain. I go, you guys are writing all of these. And, 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 you know, ultimately after two to three hours of discussions, where we arrived was, it's not like people are going to be doing less once AI become, gets there. We just have to be a lot, work is going to become a lot more sophisticated and harder. Uh, so, which brings me to this point, what kind of values do we need to instill in future students so they could adapt to a much more dynamic world? Because you're just not going to be doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the challenge that we have when, when we get really skills based. Right. And, you know, and that's and look, we, we need those. But but certain skills, um, especially technology skills, you know, the the, the shelf life you know, is getting shorter and shorter on those. So, mm-hmm. so what we as universities need to do, which by the way, is why we were founded, is to teach people how to think. Yeah. And you know what, we, we, we could probably go off on a whole tangent about how political has become about, you know, universities trying to pe- teach people what to think. You know, we're, we're not here to teach people what to think. We need to teach people how to think. And if they can be independent thinkers if they can if they can be flexible and adaptable and they can be analytical then then they can change as the world changes and i agree 100% around ai and in fact you know jp if we wanted to go back years and years and years it's the, it's the age old uh, argument about well technology displaces workers and that absolutely the research has shown that's that's you know it, it displaces certain um, types of workers when that technology can do a better job than that worker, but it, it lifts everybody up because, because when you replace that, you, you, when you get rid of that, you replace it with better, better jobs and, and better opportunities. And so I, I'm one that welcomes and embraces AI or whatever else comes along because it will enable us to be a better society, a better country, better people, but we have to be able to uh, think for ourselves. We have to be adaptable. We have to, we have to understand these te- what technology brings and where it may go. And, and that's, that's where universities come in. And, and, and honestly, somewhere along the lines, you know, we, we as an industry kind of lost sight of that a little bit, that we were founded to teach people how to think, not what to think. And, and if, we can, if we can refocus on that, and making sure that we we really do open people's eyes to what's out there, how how to be flexible, how to be adaptable, how, how to work with others, how, how to embrace technology, um, then whatever that comes along, AI or whatever it may be, people should be prepared for that and not, not afraid of it or displaced by it. Are you surprised on how we're managing risk as a society or even higher education. So for example, the risk of pandemic on on how we prepare for it. 
the, the chip shortage that we've had now now is swinging, right? Um, in your current role, we know these things are going to come. There's going to be a lot of, we got cybersecurity issues that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? Right. Um, how do you think about risk? You know, and, and so, as I, I mentioned earlier, higher education, um, as, as an industry, is an incredibly risk-averse industry. That's right. And, and I think sometimes that kind of, kind of oozes over into what we do in the classroom. And I... I, you know, I, my personal opinion is I, I think we ought to be doing more to help our students understand risk and to be risk takers, being a calculated risk, right? Not, not just crazy risk for the sake of risk. But, you know, uh, I was talking to a, a, a group uh, here in Memphis. There's a group called the Society of Entrepreneurs. Great. As you might imagine, it's a great group. And a room full of risk takers, right? Because you think every entrepreneur in some way is a risk taker because they they went out there and they did something that others were not doing or they're doing it better. Um, and that, you know, I, I think every student ought to have a class in, in ideation and innovation and the product life cycle so that they understand what that looks like, right? Of just how do you, when you have an idea, how do you cultivate ideas? How do you come up with ideas? And then how do you, how do you turn that into something and, and, and to understand the risk and manage that risk? You know, we, we don't, we don't do that for every student, right? Now, if you're, if you get a degree in entrepreneurship or, or, um, you know, you minor in it, but why, why not have that for every student so that we, we have a better understanding of risk? Uh, and and you know and I, I think so many students coming out don't even understand what that what that means and what it what it means to have, take a calculated risk, but but certainly I I think we and we've seen it as you the examples you pointed out we have gotten um, less um, we've got more risk averse and even supply chains and I think that's came came back to haunt us right because. You know, we 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 narrowed down who we would work with. We had these single channels because that was the safest thing to do and the and the cheapest and the most timely. But we didn't calculate what what would could happen, right? We didn't evaluate the risk. We we weren't we weren't willing to take some risk on alternative forms until it was actually thrown in our face, and then we saw we weren't ready for that. Um, and I think it's because we we just were not we kind of got lulled in. To uh, you know, sense of comfort, and anytime you're comfortable, it means you're risk averse because you're not willing to you know get outside that comfort zone. And um, we're we're seeing the, the impacts of it. So my my last question is around equity. So you you are a first generation, you know, very successful, obviously, uh, you know, college student and and graduate. So when this question of equity comes up a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know. And there's no clear answer to it because people are different. Some people take advantage of it, some of education, some people get stuck. So when you think about the diversity of your students, I mean, you think about equity, uh, what does the word equity mean to you? And what opportunity do you have now as a president of a major R1 university to make an impact? Most, um, I, I I believe, and I think I think the data has shown it over over time. And and you have been indicated earlier about you know the long tail of somebody having a college degree and the earnings difference is the 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 most um, the surest path to upward social mobility is through higher education. Mm-hmm. I believe that it it you know it talked about makes it you know making a difference. I believe that with every fiber of my being, and uh, I hold myself up as that example. Mm-hmm. And you know, for for a long time, I was talking to some students yesterday, uh, and I told them, uh, you know, for 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 a long time, I, I was embarrassed to talk about the fact that I was a first generation high school graduate. Mm-hmm. 
because hmm. I made it. I, I thought that made me, you know, I thought that made me less of a of a professional, less of of a person because you know that was my background. But but I've I've grown to embrace that because I I serve as an example of what look what happens when you go down that path. It it changed the trajectory of my life and my children's life and my family's life. And and we see that with our our students now. So, you know, when I think about equity, I think about what we talked about earlier with access, opportunities, and outcomes. Mm -hmm. And and that access, you know, that's that's not a one-size-fits-all, right? For some students, access is really easy. If both of your parents went to college, then access to university is relatively, it's, it's easier, right? Because you have parents who can help steer you. You probably have the financial wherewithal to do that. But if you take a kid whose parents didn't go to college, then access becomes harder because they don't have the role models to even help them understand what that is. So if we want to be accessible, then we need to be cognizant of that access means different things to different people. And then, you know, I talked about access and then opportunity to be successful when they get here. Again, that opportunity looks different by each person, right? Some are going to need more help socially. Some are going to need more help in, you know, in math. Some are going to need more help struggling, you know, uh, emotionally. We have to we have to provide them an opportunity to succeed. And then those will lead to those outcomes, which then are life changing. And from an equity perspective, starts equalizing the things uh, for our society. And and I think we we get so focused on, well, what is equity and how do we make this equitable that if we if we focus on getting students in and knowing that every student's story is different giving them an opportunity to succeed and knowing that every student is different. But, if, and we try to then tailor that and, and work toward those successful outcomes. That to me is the definition of equity because then when they finish, we're all at the same place and we all have that opportunity to, to start that first destination, get started and make something. Dr. Hargrave, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, so Thank much. you very much. Yeah, I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to be with you guys. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.